This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Going back to the start of the pandemic when everything was shut down, there have been all kinds of things that if you could have a do-over, you'd do it differently. But hindsight, that's not fair. It's not fair to use hindsight simply because something had to be done instantly. And so you can't say, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to stop. We're going to wait. It's like if you're dealing with something that is on fire, something has to be done instantly. You just, you grab whatever it is. If you don't have water, you find sand, you, you try and smother it, you, whatever it is, you are going to try and put that fire out. And you can't sit back and say, well, you know, the best way to handle this would be for us to run across the road, join together our hose with the neighbor's hose, and then, you know, put it through the front window by removing the, no. That's not how it would work. You do it quickly. But in doing so, we have seen cracks emerge. And some of those cracks have been beneficial for people. We talked yesterday about 15-year-olds who earned $5,000 last year and now are eligible for $12,000 in CERB without doing anything. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. That's a $7,000 overpayment, it sounds like. But, but that's been the way it is. Today we want to focus in on a crack that has developed that needs to be addressed because politics seems to have gotten in the way. And that is people with disabilities in Canada. Because if we go back in time, the federal government announced a one-time federal tax-free payment for the disability tax credit and its recipients, but that all of a sudden got hung up and hasn't exactly done what it needs to do. Joining us right now is Dr. Jennifer Zwicker, who's the Director of Health Policy and an Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and is also a member of the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Zwicker, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Thanks for having me. Let's kind of look at, at persons with disabilities in this country and some of the things that they are facing in this pandemic. What are some things that we need to know? Yeah, so I, I think it's been emerging that there's um, some specific needs for persons with disabilities. So they're at risk, increased infection risk um, and of serious health complications from COVID-19. Um, some persons with disabilities are. There's others that experience barriers in accessing public health information or wearing masks or other infection control procedures or just navigating some of the services and systems. Um, often they need a, a caregiver or someone to assist them, which, as we know, with social distancing is a challenge. So there's there's definitely some particular considerations, um, and these come with extra costs. Now, those extra costs, of course, can be tough to find when everybody seems to be looking at things that have extra cost to them. So the idea that this was at least thought of and that disability tax credit recipients were going to be given the the one-time federal tax-free payment, that that was there. But what kind of happened in all of that? Yeah, so the proposal was a $600 um, one-time payment to valid disability tax credit uh, certificate holders, so people who have been approved for the disability tax credit. Um, And then there was some modifications for people who had old old age security or uh, the guaranteed income supplement. And the the concern is this was put forward and 
um, there was a lot of opposition from the opposition parties in in debate, and uh, it didn't go forward in terms of um, going to full debate in in the House of Commons. And you know, part of it is um, politics. I think that were packaged in with with this bill when it was going forward. But part of it is the design, um, and that's the piece uh, we've been talking a lot about. Is there's known problems with the disability tax credit. About 40% of people who are eligible are receiving it um, just because of the huge problems in in terms of of how it's structured. So to deliver emergency kind of pandemic-related funding, you really want people who need that funding to be able to get it. And um, the challenge is, is the way this was designed means that many people who need that $600, and you could argue that it probably needs to be more than that, but um, won't be able to access that funding, which is a big problem. Dr. Jennifer Zwicker is joining us. Dr. Zwicker is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and a member of the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute. And we're looking at persons with disability in this country and the fact that politics has gotten in the way of something. And when you talk about the design of this and how only 40% of people who are eligible are actually receiving it, does that go back even before this pandemic began? Was this just something that needed to be looked at from the beginning? Yes, absolutely. So we know this design has been a problem. Um, we've actually had a Senate committee that's um, put, in, put out a report in 2018 uh, around this very issue. And then we've had a disability advisory committee struck by the Minister of Revenue um, to inform and advise around this topic with a number of excellent recommendations in their report that they released. So to, to kind of not address any of those recommendations and to go forward and just uh, still use an existing program with, with really well-articulated issues um, is, I think, the crux of the problem. What do you think could fix it? Is it simply just the restructuring of it, or is it more than that? Um, well, I think one of the big issues is the Minister of Revenue is actually one of the most powerful ministers that has impact on persons with disabilities in Canada, which just isn't a good alignment with their portfolio. So, you know, you'd, you'd really want um, probably a different minister that has ability to represent that population and kind of uh, deliver programs and services in a way that meets um, the needs of persons with disabilities. But in fact, it turns out that this tax credit it is the gateway to accessing most federal benefits and supports for persons with disability, which is is pretty counterintuitive. It's not where you would expect people to be yeah. needing to apply. So I think that that's really the big challenge. Um, there's a, a lot of, um, there's definitely need to rethink the eligibility criteria and things like that. I mean, I think that's more of a, a medium term solution. A short term solution is, you know, there are provincial programs that um, people also apply to with often with um, kind of more, uh, amenable a criteria, and so that could be another place to go. The problem is a lot of those provincial programs have also clawed back any um, uh, CERB payments that persons with disabilities may be trying to access. So. so for a part of our population that has a lot of trouble getting 
whether it's it's help in terms of funding or payments or whatever it happens to be, we're seeing now more challenges thrown up. And, and you're basically saying that the minister of the bottom line, the minister of revenue, is the person who's handling all of this. That that doesn't seem to make sense at all. Should we be surprised by that? I think so. I mean, I think this is the point people are making is it's probably not the right person to be responsible for kind of all of the eligibility for programs um, that require, you know, more of a kind of understanding of disability and needs and assessments and all of those kind of processes. So, you know, I think there's some really good logic to rethinking kind of how government, the federal government is managing these programs. Um, and, and, but, you know, the bottom line is there's two very excellent reports that have, have fully been released and are sitting there for use. So, you know, I think that in the short run, actually acting on some of those things would be a great next step. There we go. Dr. Jennifer Zwicker joining us, Director of Health Policy, Assistant Professor at the University of Calgary and the Faculty of Kinesiology. Uh, one last thing, Dr. Zwicker, you've been talking about this a lot. You've been writing about it a lot. Have you had any feedback that makes you think, okay, then here's someone who will listen and let's take a step? Um, I've Certainly from the disability community, there's a, a lot of support around the need for change of how these programs are structured. And you know, I'm, I'm, I know there are a lot of issues uh, I'm put in front of government, but I think this is a very important issue for persons with disabilities, and it's something that we, we need to be putting to the top of the priority list in a government mandate. Well, thank you for using your voice and your ability to write to attempt to do just that. Dr. Zwicker, we really appreciate the time and the information today. Great. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Jennifer Zwicker from the University of Calgary and also a director of health policy in Alberta. You know, we've got, we've got a population that would have difficulty getting, whether it's support payments or whatever it is. I mean, if, if you talk to anybody who is trying to live on those payments because they are a person with a disability, it's not easy. And then to hear that things are being complicated even further and hung up in Parliament and the person that are hung up in the House of Commons, I guess, and the person who is dealing with all this is the minister of the bottom line, the minister of revenue, uh, where it would be easy to say, yeah, well, we could cut here, we could cut here. We... Yeah, I mean, that's that's not what you want to hear, you know, and, and that is falling through the cracks. And that is part of our world that has been in a crack anyway even before this pandemic for how challenging it can be when you take everybody who would be eligible for in this case i mean the everybody who would be eligible for the disability tax credit and only 40 percent are getting in the first place because of this thing that thing well you didn't qualify here you didn't have this that's wrong in itself only 40 percent qualify it is great that doctors workers taking some time to put a voice to this because it needs as many voices as it can get we have seen some pretty tough times for a lot of things and cities municipalities in dealing with transit and the costs that come with transit they fall into that category and the idea that they don't necessarily fit within the parameters of the pandemic 
but we still need the operation of public transit. And we have seen numbers grow as we've moved into phase two of reopening. And so when you go looking at what they plan to do next, there's a lot to talk about. And it hasn't been easy to get things retrofitted. And that's simply because you've, you've got to get a lot of stuff. You've got to put the stuff in. So that's one of the things that was discussed yesterday at the London Transit Commission meeting. But we'll touch on a few things right now because the chair of the LTC and Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire joins us. Councillor Squire, how you doing? Good. I just got back from disinfecting buses out at LTC, so I'm, you know, I'm doing my job. <laughs> well, that thank you for doing that because it, it adds to one of the and, many uh, jobs that you do. Yeah, they give me a bucket and I, I get to it. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Got to be done. Well, let's kind of go over where we sit right now with buses that need to be retrofitted and need to have things put in so that they become safer for everyone. Where does all of that sit following yesterday's meeting? Yeah, so I think the first thing I would say is that, that, you know, there's a lot of confusion out there, uh, and a lot of people are always sending suggestions, right? And probably the one I hear all the time is why does the, you know, why does the cashier at the dollar store have a plexiglass, you know, piece of plexiglass, and you guys can't get them in a bus. So, you know, that's the framework. So what we did in April, once this thing sort of started, we had an emergency meeting, and we ordered the proper uh, barriers. And now these are barriers that every transit authority who's done them has. So Toronto has them. Um, some others have them. And they're not just a piece of plexiglass because it, it's a person driving a huge piece of machinery on road. So there has to be proper sight lines and, and all of that stuff. So that's sort of the, the starting point. So we ordered them from the manufacturer of the uh, buses. And so we got an early order in, and, and they are, you know, they are inundated with orders from all over Canada. People are ordering up these barriers. So we were lucky enough, actually, to be one of the earlier ones to get in, and that was good. So what we're doing is waiting for them to arrive. So they're going to start arriving on July 10th in lots of 35. So we get 35 every week, and we start installing them on buses. And it can only be installed on buses that are out of service, because obviously you, you don't do it on the road. It takes five to six hours. So by August 15th, we'll have them all there physically, and they'll all be installed, we're hoping, prior to the end of August. So other jurisdictions have tried to open in another way. So some have gone out and got made their own plexiglass barriers, you know, had a local manufacturer, put them together, install them. What happens when you do that is you immediately get a complaint to the Ministry of Labor about work standards. The Ministry of Labor has gone into those jurisdictions and said, nope, this isn't good enough, you can't do this. So um, that hasn't worked for other jurisdictions. But what we are doing and what we are going to look at is up till the time these get installed, because we're getting them anyways for driver protection, we're continuing to meet with other uh, transit authorities to find out, is there another way to get open early? In other words, is there going to be a point where if the mask, you know, let's say a driver has a proper mask, um, can we uh, operate safely? And that will be really up to the, med- to some extent, up to the medical officer of health. He's the person who deals with what's safe on a bus. So if it comes to a point before then where the medical officer of health says, you know what? If you have a driver with an N95 proper mask, the ones that protect him, and we have other things on the bus, you can operate. We will do that. But 
we can't really just, if we were to say today, you know what, we've sort of thought it's safe to drive today, let's do it. Uh, that's not going to work. So it's, this is an extremely sort of frustrating thing, but that is where we are right now at, at this moment, and we're dealing with it as best we can. Appreciate the update. We're talking with Phil Squire, who is the chair of the London Transit Commission, Ward 6 councillor. And earlier this week, council had to meet and say, okay, how can we find more savings? What projects maybe we can, can we look at? Bus rapid transit certainly comes up and we had information that the rapid transit implementation working group that's yep. getting set to meet very soon came back yep. with their report on what to do to help out west and north corridors in terms yep. of public transit. What are you seeing from them, council? Squire. Well, I'm not overly, I mean, we sent them away and said, look, and this is a unanimous vote of council. You know, we didn't do bus rapid transit on the north and west uh, legs, but look at options, you know, give us some options and come back. Well, um, they came back as one of the options on the north route, the same BRT route that was defeated by council a year ago. So the same route, they hired the same consultant and the same consultant came back and said, you know what, what you should do is make some changes on uh, Western Road and, and Warncliffe that are going to really help transit there, but do the BRT on Richmond Street, which is pretty shocking to me. And so um, if we start down that road again, then, well, we know what's going to happen. There's going to be all kinds of meetings and discussion, and I, and I just don't think that's where we should be focusing right now. I think if the next council after this one, on their own, says, you know what, we're going to take another run at, at uh, BRT on the north leg, we'll, we're going to do it. And then voters can deal with it then, but wow, can you imagine if we started up the debate on, on BRT on the legs we didn't do right now in the middle of COVID? It would be, it would be something. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can understand that completely. If, if you are out talking, do people still mention it? You know, you're, you're in kind of that north area where it would affect yeah. people in that north corridor. Does it come up? Do they have a preference? No, they, they, they thought it. They thought we voted on it. So did I. I thought we, we voted on it. We approved three out of the five routes. We didn't approve the west route and the north route. And they're like me. They, they thought it was done. And so when we sent them away, and this is, a, again, a, yeah, pro-BRT counselors and anti-BRT counselors supported this motion. And I would suggest if we had any idea that staff was going to come back with, a, with the identical BRT proposal for the north route, I would have never got involved in it. I would have voted against it. it was, and, and so it's a surprise, and I think some of my colleagues are surprised. I, I don't. I mean, I think you could take advantage and say, yeah, yeah, let's take another vote on that. Let's take a, have another vote on that North BRT route. Maybe we'll win this time, but, boy, that's, that's going to be pretty divisive, and, and I, hope we, I hope we don't. I hope we concentrate on transit right now because transit's got a big challenge right now. And for me, where we're, we're, we're going to have ridership issues coming out of COVID, where we have a deficit, um, where we don't know right now where student ridership's going to be with, with students at Western, you know, doing a lot of their courses online. I, I would like to stay away from it, but, you know, I'm, I'm one vote. Well, at the same time, thanks for giving the information so that we all kind of know what is happening. In terms yeah. of the retrofit to finish off there, yeah. once that takes place, is there a chance to collect fares again? Oh, yeah. Once the retrofit's done and those, those, those uh, plexiglass barriers are up, that's, that's the key to restarting. That's, that's what will allow us to restart. But we're also going to be looking at other methods. You know, we're, 
we've done fantastically well on at LTC. There's there's been almost you know no infections sort of traced to LTC that I'm aware of, and we had one operator off for a very short period of time um, and returned. But you know our staff so far, knock on wood, has been safe. So you know maybe there's a point where, and and we're going to have to talk about it with the with the health unit that maybe there's a point where we can get back even without the barriers. And if we can do that, that would be great. But I think one of the misunderstandings also is about masks on buses. And we really rely on the medical officer of health, you know, to decide, do we need masks on buses? Up till now, he's recommending, but not making them mandatory. So that may change also. So we're in a really fluid situation. And I'm actually hopeful, although I may be overly optimistic, that there's a way to get back to fares uh, before the, the end of the summer, but, you know, I'll find that out in July when we have our next meeting. But our staff, you know, staff's doing absolutely everything they, they can do to get back to uh, paying care. Councillor Squire, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's great to be with you. Hopefully hockey will be back sometime too. Bye. Hey, fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. We'll see what the creative <laughs> minds can come up with. Excellent. Have a good day. You too. That is Councillor Phil Squire, Chair of the London Transit Commission. I want you to think back to 2019, okay, 2019, and Western Fair. Western Fair is going to be a little different this year. But if you were there, if you were on the fairgrounds, you were walking around, and you saw a balloon, chances are you could see a balloon. There's a number of them there. Kids might be carrying them. You saw a balloon. You're able to look and say, that is a balloon. And you know it is, and you've made that discovery. You've discovered a balloon on the fairgrounds of Western Fair. What if you were able to make a discovery that when you looked for it, you you knew it was there, at least you were you were almost positive you actually we'll find out in a minute how how close to positive you would be that you knew it was there. But you had to wait a few years until the technology permitted you to say, "Yes, I can now see it. Yes, others can see it. That is there." That's kind of what we're dealing with as we blast off on a COVID break. We are leaving Earth behind. So I want you to think for the next six or seven minutes, nothing about Earth, nothing about what is going on on Earth. There is nothing to think about whatsoever, okay? We're going to focus in on something happening in outer space. And here to help us do that is a brilliant mind. Please welcome Chris Fox, a physics and astronomy PhD candidate at Western University to London Live. Chris, how are things? I'm well. How are you? Not too bad. Okay, so if we're walking around and we spot a balloon and we say, yeah, I can see that, everybody else can see that, that's a balloon, we all agree that it's a balloon, it's all fine. You have gone and made a discovery that even, what, even you can't see? (laughs) That's true. We uh, make the inference that it is there based on how it affects the star that that we can see. Okay, so how convinced... Are you 99.9% sure? Are you 53% sure? Are you 100% sure that, that these things that we're about to talk about, exomoons, are in the places that you believe they are? How sure are you? I think I'd like to put it north of uh, 50%. Okay, that's we'll take that. That's on the right yeah. side of 50%. Yeah. Okay, so I might, I might let's... be slightly biased, but I, I think it's okay. <laughs> Well, I hope you're right, because this is a nice little discovery. Uh, Let's talk about what it is that you believe you have found, that you're more than 50% sure is actually there out in the cosmos. What are we talking about? 
Well, we're talking about exomoons, and an exomoon um, is a term that we use for a moon that orbits an exoplanet, and an exoplanet is a planet that's outside of our own solar system. So we're looking at completely different stars far away from our sun, and we, look, we, we can find lots of planets, but we've never really been able to find a confirmed exomoon before. But we expect, to, we expect planets to have moons because our solar system is littered with them. Okay, and an exomoon, that's, that's something that, that is, is what? How's that different? Is, it, is our moon an exomoon? Ours is not an exomoon because it's in our solar system. Gotcha. So, yeah, when, when you add the term exo, all, all you're really saying is not in our solar system. All right, so these would be outside our solar system, but then yep. the, what are, they're, orbiting, they're orbiting what? So they're orbiting their planets, which in turn is orbiting uh, their own star, and it's by watching that star and watching uh, the transits, what happens is the, the planet will pass in front of the star, and it will cause the star to dim just a little bit. And by watching the pattern and, 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 and how often the star dims that little bit, we can say that the moon must be tugging on the planet because it occurs at intervals, but they're not quite perfectly regular intervals. Okay. We're talking with Chris Fox, a physics and astronomy PhD candidate at Western University. So do you have to notice this, or are we at a point when you can have some kind of computer program watching this, and it will notify you? <laughs> it's kind of a combination of, of things. Uh, all, all the data was collected by the Kepler Space Telescope um, during its operational lifespan, and the data was then compiled, and someone uh, collected all of the data, and figured out uh, what what are called transit timings, and these are these are the points in time when we see that star dim just a little bit. And so what I've done is I've gone in and looked through that data and applied. Okay, what would cause the timings to behave in this way? And so okay. I hypothesized that you know let's let's see what happens if we if if there were a moon orbiting that planet. And so I write a computer program many computer programs, actually, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, try to reverse-engineer the problem, saying, okay, if I put a moon here and I let this run my simulation for a while, I get this is the kind of signal I would expect. And ultimately, you get to the point where, aha, this matches what I see in the Kepler data. And therefore, you can say, if it matches, this, this is a possibility? You, you have something here. Yeah, exactly. Once we find that, that match, uh, we've got a plausible explanation for why that, uh, um, a plausible explanation for why that, that planet uh, is behaving as it is. We are talking right now with Chris Fox, and Chris is a physics and an astronomy PhD candidate at Western University. So while everything matches up in terms of, of theorizing that these are there. Can you foresee a day when you can actually point a telescope where you think these moons are, these exomoons, and then actually see a picture of them? How close are we to that day? Getting an actual you know, physical picture, the way that we get a picture of you know, 
Saturn or, or Jupiter, that's definitely a long ways off because <laughs> these are just so far away. Um, but as far as being able to follow up and confirm it, um, there might be a few ways uh, in the near future that are coming. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope will be launched in the next couple of years, hopefully. Um, and it's, it's going to have some very strong capabilities. And, and it, it's, you know, if we're lucky, we'll get them to point it at our stars at some point. Um, and there's some other, other couple of other possible techniques that could, be, that could be used to help rule out other possibilities. So if we can rule out everything that it could be, then maybe we end up with that exomoon. Love it. Well, hey, congratulations. How long has it taken all of this work? How long a procedure or a process has this been? Uh, I've been kind of working on this uh, in conjunction with my other school duties and things um, for about a year and a half, I'd say. Wow. Well, job well done through all of it, and I hope one day it helps you to become Dr. Fox. Good luck with, uh, so with everything. Is this a major part of your Ph.D.? This will be a sizable portion of it, and you know, hope, hopefully the uh, the committee will uh, will will take it as a good sign. I found a moon for you. What else do you want? <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, that's amazing. Well, Chris, I don't know what else they would want. Finding a moon uh, that should seal it in in any books that I'd be a part of. Congratulations, and please keep up the great work, and best of luck defending. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care. That's Chris Fox. He's a Ph.D. candidate in physics and astronomy at Western University. That's that's always one of those Ph.D. jokes, isn't it? Somebody once said, how do you get a Ph.D. in English? What do you do, invent an adverb? How do you, how do you get that? You know, I took this L-Y and I put it on the end of bird. I made birdly. It's a new adverb. Can I have a Ph.D. now? How do you do it? I know I'm being funny. There's a lot of work that goes into getting a PhD. But as Chris says, hey, I found a moon for you. Is that good? Yeah, that's really good. In fact, he's found more than one exomoon. And maybe, just maybe, he gets to name them one day. We'll look at it and say, yes, that is Fox142BA. Because don't they have to have lots of letters and numbers in them? Are you, can't we just call a moon Brad? Couldn't we do that? Or is that just the... There's too much of a chance that it could be taken. Is it like passwords where you have to, ah, somebody took my name. Well, you could be your name and then 11364 colon. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that at all. I'd like to just be my name. Thank you. Nope. Somebody has it. Well, how about my name and the number two? Nope. Somebody has that. 11364 colon. That's going to be you. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.